um, don't lie, and you're a truth teller. But Paul tells us that the law not only doesn't get us justification, the law actually deepens our problem. It teaches us that we're sinners. Um, verse, uh, is it verse 20? Yeah. It says, through the, he says, through the law comes knowledge of sin, so that the law makes us sinners, right? Or maybe a better way to put it is, the law makes us conscious of our sins. So um, when we try to obey the law, when we try to obey the do not murder commandment, um, the sixth commandment, what happens? Okay, we, we study it, we think about it, and we realize the fullness of the law, as Jesus properly taught, is that all lovelessness is murder. Okay, any lack of love in, with any intensity to all human beings, I'm guilty of the sixth commandment. The more you think about it, the more the, the sixth commandment condemns you and destroys you. And so it takes you further and further away from justification. So, if we could, if I could just... And is running out. Um, so, if this is the goal, the law is a dead end. It blocks us, right? I keep waiting for my recorder. <laughs> I'm, rec- I'm recording. I'm recording on the phone. Oh, you are. Yeah. Oh, okay. Wait. Then, then let me just put slip this in my um, pocket. Is that okay? I don't know if that will make it worse. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. Go ahead. You can leave it. Oh, why don't I leave it here then? Yeah. Okay. Um. All right. So verse 21 is the key when he says, "But now," right? But now, it's a, it's a change in. It's a turning point. It's a change in direction. This is the key to the gospel. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That's the bombshell. That realization um, can, if you let it, will just explode in your heart and your mind for all of your life. So what is Paul talking about? What is this righteousness of God? It's the same thing when, it, when he's talking about justification. The righteousness of God is the standard of, how are we doing? Uh, we got a different one. Oh, it's okay. Then, then, then I'm recording with Sammy. Oh, okay. Or should I or switch with uh, Up to you. You should use the mic if you're recording with that, though, so it picks up your audio. Oh, go, go ahead and use that one. Okay. You have it work, working? I can just hold it in my, po- in my pocket. <laughs> okay. Um, all right, where am I? All right. Um, so what is the righteousness of God? It's, it's not ours, right? Because, again, the law tells us we are not righteous. So then whose righteousness are we talking about? We're talking about God's righteousness. Um, the per- and what is God's righteousness? The perfect moral record of Jesus Christ, who lived the life we should have lived, who perfectly obeyed the commandments, and through him we're justified. So this is the gospel. We're not justified by the law. We're justified by Christ. Christ's righteousness. Um, Martin Luther called this an alien righteousness because it's hit, because it's not ours. It belongs to someone else. It's Christ's righteousness. That's how we are justified. And this righteousness is imputed. Um, which means credited to us, to our account. And therefore, justification is not mere forgiveness. 
It is imputed righteousness. So let me give an illustration, right? Let's say there's a criminal in prison um, who committed a terrible crime. He has a life sentence, punishment for a just punishment for his crime. Um, but then the governor decides that he is going to grant clemency, forgiveness for the criminal. So he says, you're, um, you're going to be released from prison. The punishment ceases. You're out. But does that completely solve the criminal's problems? He's no longer suffering the punishment for his sins, but he's still in a pretty bad place. He's empty. He has no money. He has no reputation. Now he has to go out there and slog it out and make it in the world. That's not justification. Justification goes so much further because it is imputed righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness credited to us. So imagine another scenario where you have a criminal who committed a terrible crime. He's a vile and wicked human being. He's granted release from prison. But not only that, the governor says, um, I'm going to give you a new, a new, a new righteousness, uh, uh, an alien righteousness. So he says, I'm going to give you a new identity. This is your new identity. You are um, uh, a Medal of Honor winner. Here's the Medal of Honor award. Here's all the records for it. Here's your new identity. Here's a million dollars credited to your account. You're a millionaire right now. And then everywhere he goes, veterans, police officers, they salute him because he's a Medal of Honor winner. So that's what justification is, right? It's Christ's righteousness imputed, credited to us, even though it's not ours, it's alien, it's outside of us. But because of his righteousness, now heaven's doors are open. We have the applause of heaven. We have the warm embrace of of, of of the Father, um, because all that belongs to Christ belongs to us. Any questions there before we move on? What is justification? It's an amazing doctrine. Yes. Question. So, on the, in verse 21, uh, the second half of it, so, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear, bear witness, witness to it. Yeah, the law and the prophets there is talking about scripture. So, so they, they bear witness to the this, law? No, no, to this truth, that there's a righteousness apart from the law. Okay. Why is it although? Shouldn't it be something like just as the law and prophet? Um, no, because it seems to be adverse to one another. Right? So the, he's basically saying the Old Testament seems to be a little bit in contradiction to one another. The Old Testament says, obey and you will live. But then within the law itself is there is an alien righteousness awaiting you that will be imputed to you, credited to, to you. So there is a righteousness apart from the law, testified to in the law itself. Okay. Um, so this is the main. Okay. So this is this is where we dif- disagree with Roman Catholicism, right? Um, what is the main distinction or main um, split between Catholics and Protestants? It's not just you know the papacy or or, or um, veneration of Mary and the saints. Um, the main main thing is justification, and the main issue is when does justification happen and on what basis does justification happen? Right? So remember, justification is a verdict. When does this verdict, when does the judge pronounce you, you are righteous? Roman Catholics will say, justification happens at the end of your Christian life. So what happens is, you begin the Christian life, you begin it by believing the gospel, right? You receive the gospel, and then at the moment of faith, you receive, you're infused with grace, 
So Roman Catholics believe in grace. And then you live a, a lifetime of good works. And then at the end of your Christian life, you receive the verdict. You're justified. And then you're glorified, right? You you um, receive the, uh, a new body, uh, a resurrected body. You, you, you enter God's new, new heavens and new earth. So, therefore, what is the basis of our justification in the Roman Catholic uh, thinking? You're justified on the basis of a lifetime of good works. Because it comes at the end. Does that make sense? It begins with faith. Faith and grace kickstarts, infuses your life. And it enables you to then perform the good works, which then is the basis upon which you are justified. What happens if you don't accrue sufficient merit, sufficient good works? The Roman Catholics have an answer for you, which is you go on to purgatory. And in purgatory, and in purgatory can last a thousand years, ten thousand years, depending on how deficient you are in terms of your good works. Um, purgatory, you make up the loss. You make up the difference, you, you square the, 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 the account, until finally you receive justification. How sad for the people in torment, suffering, in purgatory, you can speed the process up through indulgences. This is still the Roman Catholic teaching. Indulgences um, use what is called the treasury of merit. So there are some people in the Catholic Church who are so extraordinarily holy and righteous, they go beyond their, their quota. And so then they spill over the excess into the treasury. The Catholic Church is a treasury of merit. And then you draw upon that merit, and then you credit it to those in purgatory. This is still the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. But how do you know who's in purgatory? So it's just like it goes into a bank and it's just passed down. You know because you've watched and observed their Catholic life and it was deficient. But how do you know? You don't really fully know. So there could be people in purgatory that you're not fully, you're not sure of. So who announces if they're in purgatory or if they're justified? You know, I don't know, but I guess the Catholic Church then has the authority to make a judgment on these matters. Where does the, that teaching come from? Is it from their like the extra books that walk upon? The doctrine of purgatory, you cannot find it in the Old or New Testament. It seems to be alluded to in, I believe, Second Maccabees. But mostly, Roman Catholics have a dual source of doctrine. They have scripture, which they um, accept as authoritative, but they also have a long line of church tradition and church um, history. And so uh, the history of purgatory, um, there's, a, there's a rich and long, deep teaching on purgatory. Purgatory is necessitated by this doctrine of justification at the end of your life, right? So it, it sort of arose as a kind of compensatory accommodation, but that's their source. It's not really scripture, although it seems to be alluded to in one of the apocryphal books. Let me go on. So then what is the Protestant view, Okay. So this is the, the this, so here comes Martin Luther. Here comes the Protestant Reformation. Um, it's going to look remarkably similar. Yes, lifetime of good works. Yes, your Christian life begins with faith. Yes, um, faith 
grace, grace, um, God's grace comes upon you, faith comes upon you. But the Protestants will say, when does justification happen? Um, yeah, I wouldn't put it that way, but you receive justification through faith. But yes, it happens at the beginning of your Christian life. Does that make sense? You're justified. And then you live a lifetime of good works, and then you're glorified. You're brought into the new heavens and the new earth. You're made perfectly righteous. If you're justified at the beginning of your Christian life, are you justified on the basis of your good works? It cannot be. What are you justified then? If it's at the beginning of your Christian life, you lived a life as a heathen, as a pagan, running around, dissipating, living a wicked life, it is based only on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So then the Roman Catholics will say, well then what, what good should we do good works then? What's the reason? You're not doing good works in order to be justified. You're doing good works because you're justified. It's the fruit of justification. It comes out of always... A justified person will always live a life striving to please God, obey Him, and love Him. Not in order to get heaven, but to please Him because you love Him. Okay? Um, Any questions so far? Yes? Uh, Is there a special word for justification in the original language that sets it apart from salvation in general? Yes. Um... Justification, justificare, is that is that the the Greek word or is it? Um, am I thinking the of Latin? the Latin? Um, I cannot recall. Oh, uh, uh, dikaiosin. What is it? Dikaiosine, which is righteousness. That's Paul's word for justification. So he's saying, um, uh, yeah. So a lot of people would translate it uh, rectification or righteousness. Um, you're you're righteous. That's the the Greek word for it. Yeah. So it's this in distinction to salvation, right? Um, um, soteros, right? So, so, here's, so here's the other thing, right? Um, so the Roman Catholics will respond that it seems so clear to Protestants, right? <laughs> but the Roman Catholics will say it's a lot more ambiguous than you think. Um, because they'll say, like for example, are you saved by works? Can Protestants agree to that? By whose works, I guess? I think we can. All right, so it has to do with this word saved, right? So I think this is where the Bible's language, there's a lot of biblical language that supports this kind of expression. You're saved by your works, right? There's lots. For example, here's Philippians 2.12, right? Work out your salvation. Through fear and trembling. There's a working going on in your salvation, right? That's because salvation isn't just faith, it isn't just justification, but it's sanctification and it's glorification. All of that. You were saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. You're not saved finally, ultimately, until you're ultimately in his hands, secure, right? Until you're in the new heavens and the new earth. So are you saved by works? I think the Protestants would modify this. You're saved according to your works. Right? If you have no good works, then are you truly saved? No, right? Uh, as Jesus says, if a, if, if a tree bears no fruit, the tree is dead. The fruit doesn't give the tree life, but the fruit is the evidence of the life that the tree has life. But the Catholics will say you're saved because of your works, right? 
But the, but the word by is ambiguous. <laughs> Sufficiently ambiguous that Protestant Catholics can agree on this statement. But then what do we exactly mean? So we have to parse it out. So Protestants um, speak about justification as a technical term, which Paul uses as a technical term. In Catholic theology, they rarely, rarely talk about justification. They mostly talk about just salvation. But then what do you mean if you break it down? This is what they mean. Uh, any questions before we move on? Yes. So I mean, like in the Bible, like if, even in verse 20, right? For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Mm-hmm. So clearly, Catholics would wouldn't like dismiss that. How they must be understanding the works of the law. They would say they would say James, where where James says um, um, we are justified by our works. James, and we'll get to that when we get to James. They would say James is the, uh, which is foundational, Romans or Galatians or James? And they would say James is foundational. So we need to read Romans and Galatians in light of what's going on in James, but also in light of what's going on with all the church fathers, you know, Catholic teaching and so forth. All right. You guys look very disturbed. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So how do we receive this justification? Through faith. Faith is not a meritorious work. It's not the one good deed that we do by which we're justified. Faith is the fitting instrument of our justification. Do you know why? Because faith is the empty hand that receives the gift. Faith says, I have no righteousness in me. I'm a sinner. You know, uh, have mercy on me, O Lord. And it receives uh, the righteousness of Christ. Um, And then verse 26, um, where uh, Paul ends, so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the believer, Um, So what does that mean? It means that, first of all, the cross satisfies the demands of the law, the penalty of the law, so he is just. No one can say God is not just. All all sin is uh, punished, and he gives grace to um, his people, so he is the justifier. So he's just and the justifier. That's the wonder of the gospel. God satisfies the demands of the law, but he satisfies also his heart of mercy. It means on the cross. Um, any questions before we go on to First Corinthians? How are we doing in terms of time? All right. Oh, I just did two letters. All right. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, this will be just as engaging uh, and and intense and interesting. Um, this this doctrine, we're justified by faith alone. It's not just um, a doctrine that you check off on a test, on a, on, a, on a Christian theological test, and you're a believer. It truly has powerful application for Christian living. Because the natural default of the human heart is you're justified by your works. That's what everyone naturally believes. Even when you intellectually agree you're justified by grace through faith, justified by Christ, Everyone naturally defaults. And so it it comes up in so many ways. Um, Some bad things are happening in your life. You wonder, is this punishment? Am I doing something wrong? Um, You're praying, but you feel like you can't ask God for something because you haven't been faithful in your devotionals. You have have some um, consistent, persistent sin in your life. So you feel like God's mercies won't come upon you. The natural default of the human heart is you're justified by your works. And you have to continually remind yourself that um, you cannot 
There's nothing you can do to take away from the, the righteous verdict you already have in Jesus Christ. You cannot add to it. You cannot take away from it. You cannot um, sin beyond out of the Father's love. And you can't live such a good life that the Father is shining his, his mercy and grace on you because you're further in righteousness. All right. Um, let's go to 1 Corinthians. Unlike Romans, very um, different letter um, than uh, 1 Corinthians. Um, and then Romans, which is, uh, 1 Corinthians is very situational. It's addressing uh, a myriad of practical problems in the church. You have divisions and factions. You have sexual immorality, social snobbery, questions about marriage, divorce, pagan rituals, resurrection. So we're going to read one um, passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians in general, is there's just so many different issues it's addressing. Um, but this is the one I thought would be the most instructive and helpful, uh, which is on church discipline, right? So this 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 word sends shivers. So let's 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 dive into it. Okay. So re- listen carefully. Okay. So li- listen to what Paul has to say. Listen to the logic to it. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated. Even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not to? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and in, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are to deliver this man to Satan. For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. You do not know that a little. Uh, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sa- uh, sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would have need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those outs- is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. All right. So uh, what's going on here? First of all, um, the church discipline um, that Paul's talking about is for the unrepentant. Um, I don't particularly like church discipline, the term church discipline, because it, it has such um, uh, ominous, threatening tone to it. I prefer the word church care. <laughs> Does it sound euphemistic? It is not. PR. Everyone receives church care, but I guess what we're talking about when we talk about church discipline is this um, final, you know, uh, the, towards the unrepentant, right? Somebody who will not receive... I can't talk and 
Right. I don't know how you can just do it. Okay. <laughs> um, so it feels threatening. And let me just acknowledge right away that many people have been abused by the church on the matter of church discipline. Um, so rightly so, people are um, they're fearful. And also, I think compounding it is American individualism, which is that we're very individualistic. We don't want the bonds of community. We like community in the abstract. We like belonging and connectedness, but we don't want the demands of community, obligation, responsibility. But let me try to give um, the most uh, positive pitch. Let me try to woo you. Let me try to win you to the beauty of church discipline, okay? So first of all, here's the argument. The church is a community of love. That's the foundation, love. What is the gospel about? What is church all about? It's about love. And love always does the hard but necessary thing. If you love someone, you will not let the person that you love do destructive things to themselves and to others. You will always speak up. Um, you will always give them accountability. There's an expression called enabling, right? What is enabling? Who can tell me? Enabling is when you cover up or mask or shield somebody from the consequences of their destructive behavior, and in effect, you're allowing them to continue their destructive behavior, even though you think you're acting kind and patient and loving, you're actually making the situation worse. That's enabling. What is the opposite of that, or what is true love? Um, enabling is cowardly and it's ultimately not loving. What is the truly loving thing? Truly loving is confrontation, right? So you have to intervene. And when you intervene and speak the truth in love, you suffer. Because the person you speak the truth in love to will not like it. And they will bite back, which means you suffer. So ultimately, all true love is suffering. When you love someone and they're suffering, you suffer right there with him, right? Um, the second thing is that... Um, it's loving to the community. And this is what Paul means when he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Holiness is corporate. Holiness is not just an individual thing, it's not private morality, but it's a communal life of holiness. So even a little drop of, un of leavened bread, meaning it has yeast, you work it into the lump, the whole lump will become um, leavened, will have yeast in it, right? Why? Because let's say you have a church community, and there's this one person who um, is sleeping with a prostitute. And everybody around this believer is enabling him and looking the other way, ignoring, and not saying anything. Then you have some weaker brothers say, huh, I guess sleeping with prostitutes is acceptable in this church. It must not be wrong. It must actually be a good thing in the Christian life. I too will go see a prostitute. So then it be the leaven begins to spread. And then it infects or, or it influences the whole batch. So church discipline is necessary because you love the individual. Church discipline is also necessary because you love the whole community, right? So then what does Paul mean when he says, let him be removed from among you? Where is that in um, um, verse uh, 2, right? At the end of verse 2, let him be removed from among you. So this is widely, widely misunderstood, poorly practiced. Um, either it is neglected entirely or it is practiced in a very heavy-handed way. So what, is what does removal mean? Let him be removed from among you. 
It does not mean shunning. And I'll explain why. It is not the silent treatment. This is the way many, many churches practice it. This person is under church discipline. No one can talk to them anymore. You see them at the grocery market, pretend they're dead right? Um, but that's not what's going on. You have to read this letter carefully. Because what does Paul say? Verse 11. But I am now writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality. So what you're doing is you're, ta- you're going to a brother who has the name of Christ on him. Meaning, he says, I'm a Christian. I, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And then you say to him, yeah, but you're not living like you're following him. Your life is not consistent with following him. And um, you've been warned or you've been, you've been challenged, you've been uh, confronted in love, you sp- you've heard the word, the, the, the truth spoken in love, and you're, you're unrepentant. You're, you're, you're persisting in this sin. So anyone who persists consistently in unrepentant sin, I don't think you're, you're following Christ. It, your life, your your life doesn't match your words, right? They're in contradiction. There's a formal process for that. The formal process where you tell them, "I don't think um, um, you're you're a Christian," is excommunication. Now, excommunication sounds like shunning, um, excommunicating, right? Um, that's because uh, we don't understand the Latin root, right? When, we, when we're talking about communication, what's another, where's another word you sh- you've heard the word communication or something like that in the church, an official activity of the church? I heard it. I, I don't know who said it. Communion. What is communion? Are we all sitting together, like, communicating to each other? Hey, <laughs> what you doing? Communion means fellowship, connection. Right, formal um, communion among the believers. Right, that's what uh, 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 communication means. So excommunication is you've broken the fellowship with us. It doesn't mean shunning. It doesn't mean silent treatment. Because listen to the way Paul writes in um, verse 11. He says, "Don't associate with anyone who bears the name of brother." And then in verse 10 he says, or verse 9 and 10 he says. Um, not to associate with the sexually immoral, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or uh, uh, what is it? Since then you would have need to go out of the world. What is he saying? Okay, this is very very important. What he's saying is this: This is the church. This is the world. Okay, church discipline is for people in the church, and when they have persistent, um, unrepentant sin. You're telling them through the process of excommunication, I don't think you're acting like a believer, so we're going to take away the name of Christ from you so that you're now you're in the world, but you know what? We love the world. There are many people of the world in our church, attending our church, sitting in our worship service, going to community group. We're friends with the, with the people of the world. What was Jesus' attitude and actions? He was constantly surrounded by prostitutes and tax collectors. People of the world loved him, right? There was some kind of incredible moral beauty and compassion and love while he maintained absolute rock-solid righteousness and truth to God's law. So that's the attitude of the church. So 
so this is the way I would put it, right? Um, so this is the world. Uh, this is the. Uh, uh, sorry to do a Venn diagram on you. This is this is this is your circle of friends, and then this is everyone in the church. All you're doing is taking them out of the church, but they're still your friends. Does that make sense? You're not disassociating with them in the sense that you're no longer talking with them or your friends. In fact, now you're wooing them because now they're in the world. They're they're an unbeliever, and what you're doing is you're trying to wake them up. Um, where are we? Verse five, right? Um, it says, Paul writes, you are to deliver this man to Satan. That sounds bad. For the destruction of the flesh. That sounds, that sounds pretty bad too. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Okay, so what are you doing? You're delivering him to Satan. Satan is the ruler, the prince of the air and of this world, right? So this is Satan's world. So what you're saying is this. Somebody who, like let's say they're visiting prostitutes every week and they're unrepentant. You're saying to them, your father isn't our Heavenly Father, your Father is Satan. You're acting like that. You're a child of Satan when you do these things. Um, and so you're trying to shake him and awaken him to his sin. When Paul says the destruction of the flesh, he can't possibly mean destroy them, crush them, <laughs> because then what does he say in the next phrase? He says, so that he may be saved. How can you save someone by destroying them? He's talking about the destruction of their flesh. The Greek word there is sarx. He's talking about the sinful nature. Right, so that when somebody is outside the fellowship of the church, they're in the world. All of their Christian friends are saying, "You're not, you're not, you're not acting like a believer." Then they will say, "Oh, I'm suffering the consequences of living in the world, chasing after sin, um, going through this cycle of of bad consequences, and then regret, and then feeling like a slave, so that they could be saved. They can come back into the church repentant." Um, and then when Paul says in verse 11, not even to eat with such a with such a one, the eating doesn't mean don't ever like go to Starbucks and have coffee with them. He's talking about something very formal, communion, right? So, what does church mean? Church means two things: um, membership. How do you know you're in the church? <clears throat> you're a member, right? You're you're formal uh, uh, on the list of membership in the church. You went through a process, and you partake at the Lord's table. So these two things you're removed from. You're no longer a member. That's excommunication. Not even to eat with such one. They're no longer welcome to the table. But they can still be in the worship service, and we hope that they will join the Lord's table um, through repentance. Any questions there? So does it mean excommunication is kind of like a public process? So like people in the church are aware that is excommunicated? Because holiness is communal. So you're, um, so you you are sanctioning them. So you're telling the whole church visiting prostitutes is not accordance with the Christian life. Right. So then, I guess, like, would you say person X is excommunicated because of sin Y to the whole church? Then not sin Y, sin Y, unrepentant. There is no sin that's unforgivable. Anyone can anyone can be in the church. You can see prostitutes, and then. I will cry and wrap my arm around you and say, what are you doing? And then if you cry <laughs> and you say, I'm in the wrong, you know, and it was um, weakness of the flesh, and I'm, but I'm in the wrong. I want to make things right. I want to live righteously. There's no sin you can do that will ever remove, remove you outside the church. The only sin is unrepentance. Persistent, consistent, 
um, uh, what is it, provocative sin to which you will not repent. I'm just curious about like the whole process of that communication, right? Like yeah. So what what ends up happening is that because we live in such an individualistic church, anytime you start the process of church discipline with somebody and they're unrepentant, they basically just leave the church. Mm-hmm. So we we've never had a chance to do church discipline. Um, I think it would be great to do church discipline, and and for people to hold on, and there will be a whole cycle where they will the destruction of the flesh they'll be handed over to Satan. That'll be understood correctly so that their souls may be saved. They'll come back into the church. Um, any questions, Eric? Because um, you said like a lot of times when we go through that process, people will leave. Yeah. Um, is it a loving, would it be a loving thing to do to like find out where they're going to church next and then like tell their church or their new pastor? Hound them. Because <laughs> <laughs> like for the sake of their souls, for yeah. the sake of that new church community, is that, or is that, yeah, so how do you practice church discipline is really an element of wisdom and also some culture, you know? So, yeah, I think, like, if all the churches were good churches, we would all be interweb connected, even as we're different churches. And if anyone comes into another church and they say, hey, I'm already a believer. Oh, you are a believer. What fellowship, what body were you a member of? Oh, I was a member of so-and-so community church. Oh, great. We'll transfer your membership. Oh, don't, uh, don't talk to them. <laughs> Why not? Right? Oh, because I was seeing prostitutes and I, I still want to keep doing that. Then your problem with that church is the same problem you're going to have at our church, right? So that would be the right and good thing to do is all the churches connect and communicate with one another so that no one can escape church discipline. Because to escape church discipline is to escape the love of Christ, is to escape accountability, is to continue to be enabled, but I don't, I don't, but I don't know. Like, can we do that? Can we hound them? I don't know. That seems awfully aggressive. So maybe I am an American individualist. <laughs> <laughs> I feel reluctant to do that. I have a question. Yeah. Um, so Nate and I have a friend who recently was placed on church discipline yeah. for a sin that we don't consider that bad. Okay. To be, yeah. And the church kind of is very heavy-handed and shunning, silent treatment. There have been some weddings where basically it shook he's, up all the He's not invited or he's something. He's not invited. And, or he, or he, the one that he is invited to, he's the best man. No one who went to at that church is... They're not allowed to attend the wedding. Yeah, stuff like that. Very heavy-handed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you do to a, like with a church that interprets it heavy Like, they, they're not practicing it. I'll say read First Corinthians chapter five carefully. Well, they are, but they're, they're <laughs> but they're they're taking it as yeah, the shunning, the silent treatment, the actual ex. Yeah, what do you? How do you call like a church leadership? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I love to do that. I would love. I said, let's talk. Let's go to Starbucks. <laughs> let's let's read the Bible together. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you're right. A lot of churches. I would say, eighty percent of churches abuse church discipline by never doing it ever. Never saying anything critical because you're so afraid of offending somebody. So everyone is basically individualist and they just do whatever they want and they just come to church. That's how it's abused. Then there's a small minority of churches that say, hey, we're going to be serious. And so, wah, boom, you know, just like, like, um, you know, uh, the hammer of the law, right? Again, church discipline is never punitive. It's never punishment. It's never authoritarian. It's not like what the state does where they put you in prison. It is always an act of love. Think of it always as a family. If you're if you have a son if you're if you're a parent and your son is a persistent drunkard, 
you're going to give them consequences to help them to sobriety. But your love will never withdraw. You will never stop loving them. They could sin against you forever. And you will love them in prison. You know, you will love them uh, to the end. So that's what church discipline is, right? It's, it's, it's absolute love. So, so there is something to be said where can we do church discipline if that person, if we're not doing it with love? Yeah, I mean, we have to constantly check ourselves because there's always a, a temptation to do it in a self-righteous manner. I think we always want, again, remember, we're justified by faith alone, but the natural default of the human heart is we're justified by our works. Works is too hard, too ambiguous, too high, too difficult. Better to just compare. <laughs> so you're justified by being slightly better than other people. That's the default mode of the human heart. So we love to love to love to look down on and notice sins in other people. I think, by the way, that's probably what's going on in politics too. We love to villainize the other side and think, oh, there's just full of evil, wicked, vile people. That means I'm justified by my slightly righteous stance, right? That's true in all arenas of life. So I guess that's like we, we have to constantly say, are we doing it in love? Do we truly love the person? And I think the test of love, suffering. Because when you truly love someone, you suffer for them. And you cannot love someone properly unless you're, 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 you're suffering for their well-being. Yeah. I don't know if that answers the question. Do you, do, you want, do you want to give me the name of the church? No. I'll, I'll write them a letter with church letterhead. Stop the recording here. Secret, No, because we're not a formal fellowship. So, um, so here's the thing, right? When you're, this is the church. This is the church line. What is this line? How did this line happen? The line is a formal contract, right? Like this. You're married. Right? And you're unmarried. Whoops. How do you cross from unmarried to married? A lot of people think by moving in together. That's not it. So what is the, what is the line, David? David, you cross that line, right? Right, you cross the line. So what was it? <laughs> married, right? Yeah, but what did you do to get married? Oh, we had a ceremony. That's right. But what did you do in the ceremony? Vows. Yeah. Covenant. You made a formal promise. That's the line. It's not moving in together. It's not joining, doing joint checking account. Right. It's a promise. So how do you know that you're you cross over from the world and into the church? Is it by attending? No, you're just you're just moving in. We're just boyfriend girlfriend living together. No. <laughs> What's the line? Membership. Oh, it's what I was saying. So so so. <laughs> right? So we're all interconnected, and then. Let's think of this as the as the universal church. There's a lot of little churches inside, right. and we're all connected by a vow. So I can only do this with another church that I've done a vow with. Mm-hmm. So if the church you're talking about is another PCA church, I will gladly. Because <laughs> <laughs> what will happen is, because we're all in American individualists, you go to another church and they'll say, what the heck, who, who are you? Who told you you could say anything to me? Fair. Yeah. Mm. All right. Um, any questions? There's one quick question. Is that this addresses the person who's sinning? Like Unrepentantly. Unrepentantly, right. But um, it, the, the, 11, 11, the small 11 will have as a whole go. So how do you deal with the, um, the church that's left behind in this context of they leave because you start talking to them about something. Mm-hmm. They leave, but his or her action has influenced the church already. So 
Yeah, so you have to create a church culture where they understand holiness is corporate. And you're your brother's keeper. And um, the sins of what that you see going on in your brother and sister, you're responsible for them. And um, and so everyone has an obligation to speak up if they see somebody living in contradiction. Is that, does that answer your question? Or like... Like someone, like you said, sleeping with prostitutes. Yeah. And others kind of believe, oh, maybe that's okay. But yeah. they don't say it. Yeah. But in their mind, oh, maybe it's okay. Yeah, so I think, it, I, I think so, so in Matthew 18, Paul, ta- I mean, so Jesus talks about the beginning process of church discipline, which is you always keep it confidential at first. Mm-hmm. You don't want to shame the person or out the person because you're giving them a chance to be broken. That's always the goal. You, you're giving them a chance to be broken in private. And so, hopefully, um, that works. But then, you slowly escalate. And when you slowly escalate, the circle of people involved becomes bigger. It's sort of like an escalation to an alcoholic, right? And so, hopefully, by the time that person leaves, the escalation has been to such an extent that when he leaves or when she leaves, everybody knows it's because they don't want to confront their, their unrepentant sin. Does that answer your question? Okay. Yeah. Matthew 18 means we have to escalate, and we escalate by widening the circle. And then the final escalation is the elders are brought in, the whole church knows about this matter. And then the final step. And this is an extreme step. This is like, in my opinion, after months and months of tears, pleading, will you not come back to Christ? Will you not live in accordance with the scriptures and the gospel? Will you please? Right? It's tears. And then finally, with tears, you say, well, then we take away the name of brother. From you. But you're still our friend. We still love you. We want you to be at our weddings. And <laughs> All right, let me pray. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you for Scripture, um, for the hard parts of Scripture, for the sweet parts of Scripture. It's all for our good, for our um, upbuilding. Um, help us to be a church of love. Help us to love each other as Christ has loved us. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.